Live from New York, I'm Allison Kothick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID caution, Omicron cases rise as travel rules tighten. Recovery risk, the OECD warns new variants, the new variant could damage global economy. And crude contortions, oil's roller coaster ride continues as OPEC leaders meet. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We've got another jam-packed show for you this Wednesday. Let's begin with a check of the global markets. A firmer picture on Wall Street after Tuesday's drop of more than 1.5%. Investor uncertainty over the new COVID variant as well as the future of Fed economic support hit sentiment in the previous session, but we are set to claw back a lot of those losses in early trading today. Europe looks like it's recovering lost ground as well after a modestly higher Asian close. That said, Fed Chair Jerome Powell rattled investors during congressional testimony yesterday. He said policymakers will consider a quicker end to their emergency bond buying program as inflationary pressures mount. Powell admitting that inflation is no longer transitory and won't ease anytime soon. All of this raising the possibility of a quicker liftoff for rate hikes next year. The OECD also warning today that the Omicron variant has the potential to weaken the global economic recovery. COVID concern remains our top story today, so let's get right to our drivers. A doctor in South Africa where Omicron was first identified saying most patients he's seen with the new variant have mild symptoms. What we see on the ground is that uh, we're seeing uh, younger patients and we're seeing uh, milder cases of uh, Omicron. But also we, what we've noted is that uh, the people that are, are being hospitalized are largely uh, unvaccinated. Uh, about 90% of those are unvaccinated. And like I said, there is nothing much that we see uh, uh, beyond what we have seen with the Delta variant. This, as scientists in the country are racing to learn more about Omicron and how well vaccines can stand up against it. David McKenzie is live for us in Johannesburg. David, the world is literally looking to South Africa at this point for more information about this variant. Well, that's right. And the world found out about the variant because of the work of South African scientists and in this region, the genomics work, the surveillance work that alerted the world to this variant. There's more and more evidence, though, that uh, this variant was circulating substantially before the announcement was made about the details, and that's to be expected. And as you see, different countries around the world announcing a positive case of Omicron, I mean, again, that shouldn't really surprise us because the expectation is that it might be more transmissible than previous Mm -hmm. variants. No evidence yet, though, that it's more severe. We went into the lab that first picked up the anomaly that led to this discovery. After tracking COVID for many months at this lab, Janine Duplessis is bracing herself. Have you seen a lot more positive cases in the last few weeks? Yes, we have. First a trickle, then a flood at the Witzwede lab. They're studying a disturbing variant of an old foe. It's still too early to actually tell. There's so much that is so unknown about the variant. Everyone feels a little bit of hopelessness in a moment like that. 
This lab is really at the coalface of the COVID response. You know, they're expanding so fast, they're putting their samples in freezers right here in the hallway. They come in in shifts, and as this wave develops, they'll be operating 24 hours a day. They know how bad it gets. This was Delta's awful impact in Johannesburg. In July, patients stacked in hallways, struggling to breathe in exclusive footage obtained by CNN. At the Witzwieder lab, and all across the globe, they're trying to understand whether Omicron is more transmissible, deadlier, whether it breaks through existing COVID-19 vaccines. What does it feel like that the entire world is hanging on this discovery that was figured out here initially? Yeah, so I, I mean, it, it, it can, it does feel a bit sort of surreal when you watch the news and you see the impact it's having globally and you're thinking, wow, you know, it's sort of affecting stock markets and, <laughs> and airlines and people's travel plans. Uh, you know, you kind of don't plan on having that sort of ripple effect. A spike in cases first happened in Pretoria with a cluster infection at this technical university. But hints of a new variant were first detected by scientists and pathologists at Lancet Laboratories. In early November, they spotted a strange anomaly in their positive PCR tests. Then it happened over and over again. It reminded them of tests for the Alpha variant, first detected more than a year ago in the UK. What was it like to see this anomaly cropping up again? Well, it was a bit dis disturbing because we, you know, made us worry that we were dealing with something new. Uh, and because it coincided with an increase in positivity rates, it made us worry that we could be dealing with a new variant. Lancet urgently notified South Africa's genomics team. Within days, they described and made public disturbing details of the highly mutated virus. Much of the world shut off travel from southern Africa. And scientists here say they are now struggling to fly in critical reagent for their lab work to understand Omicron. Why was it so important to alert everybody about this? Especially with the reaction of the world to, to southern Africa on the announcement of the variant. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, why don't you just keep quiet about what you find? But what's important is we know that a new variant is likely to cause an increase in cases, whether they be more severe or not. So those cases are increasing in this province, especially of South Africa, Alison. But at this stage, no clear indication it's any worse than previous waves. And in this country, at least, they've suffered through three waves of this virus. More variants are clearly going to develop. And it really speaks to both whether these kind of hard lockdown of travel is worth the economic, severe economic impact, and whether we have to just learn to live with this virus and its variants. Alison? David McKenzie, great access in that laboratory and bringing us all that information. Thanks so much. And from Africa to Asia, China now seeing one of its worst outbreaks since the pandemic began. A city near the Russian border has reported more than 70 cases. Meantime, in Japan, the government is asking all airlines to stop taking reservations on incoming international flights. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with more. Ivan, what's the latest with all of these developments? Well, you have what's being described as one of the worst outbreaks that China has seen since uh, the first real detected epidemic of COVID in December of 2019 in the Chinese city of Wuhan. 
When we say this is one of the worst outbreaks, you do have to put this in context. We're talking about 100 cases since Saturday, a bit more than that, in the northern region of Inner Mongolia around several border cities, which I think many other countries in the world would love to have numbers like this. But for China, which has maintained such a draconian system of lockdowns whenever COVID is detected, it is maintaining this zero COVID policy uh, for China, this is a big deal. So they have locked down two cities in a neighboring district. Hundreds of thousands of people cannot leave their homes. Public transport shut down, for example, and cross-border trade from Russia, uh, non-container trade that needs to be handled, also suspended with Chinese officials suggesting that this uh, outbreak is caused by the virus being passed on the surfaces of goods. Uh, The Chinese authorities uh, have seen other outbreaks of similar sizes in other parts of the country, but they have maintained these lockdowns, these massive testing sprees where they test hundreds of thousands or millions of people in a matter of days, and they have succeeded in the past of snuffing out these uh, regional outbreaks. Now, you mentioned Japan as well. Japan has, oh, and I might add, China to date has not detected any cases or announced any cases of the Omicron uh, variant being found. Japan has found two cases and it has issued a request, not a mandate yet, to Japanese and international airlines operating in and out of Japan to not issue any further reservations throughout the month of December to international travelers, which will, of course, uh, be quite a damper uh, in the upcoming holiday season. Allison. And the question is, will airlines actually stop taking those reservations? We'll have to wait and see. Ivan Watson, thanks so much. And join us for a CNN Town Hall Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by Anderson Cooper and Dr. Sanjay Gupta and featuring Dr. Anthony Fauci. That's Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday at 10 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 a.m. in Abu Dhabi. The new variant is just one of a number of major year-end challenges for global investors. Markets have been on a roller coaster ride since the discovery of Omicron late last week, but a positive tone today as we kick off December trading. Christine Romans joins me now. You know, we see those green arrows, but we've got that sort of afterglow of, uh, you know, Powell saying, indicating he's going to speed up tapering, talk about talking about moving up the timetable of increasing rates, just as this variant is in the mix that can slow down economic growth. You know, you can't help but wonder, is Jay Powell, the Fed chair, more worried about inflation than we realize? Well, you know, he's not using the word transitory anymore. It looks like inflation is dug in and it's something that's going to linger. The factors contributing to inflation, the Fed chief said, will linger into next year. So the Fed is now in inflation fighting mode as uh, its issue number one. And it's really an Omicron yo-yo that we're facing here. Friday, big down day, Monday up, yesterday down. Now it looks like you're going to be up again today. So I think this is the kind of tone we can expect in the near term in terms of investors. November, Allison, was a down month, a rare down month for stocks, but not down too much, uh, especially for the S&P and the Nasdaq, just barely a little bit lower on the month. But you look at the year, it's been a powerhouse 2021 rally. I mean, the S&P 500, that is the index that probably most people in the U.S., their, their 401k is probably reflective of what you see there in the uh, S&P 500. 
that's up almost 22 percent so far this year. So really, I mean, the risk is the headline risk is to the downside, I think, for investors as we wait for more information about this uh, variant. And we see how the Fed is going to do in, in both fighting inflation and rolling back its epic, epic stimulus of the American economy. So really a really interesting moment to start December, the final month of this year, isn't it? Oh, you said it. Absolutely. So what, how do you think the market would react if uh, Jay Powell and his uh, colleagues decide to go ahead and, inc- you know, move up that timetable to raise interest rates, Just, you know, start earlier and do that earlier? At the same time, the market is beginning to be concerned about inflation, too. So how do you see the market reacting? Well, it's interesting because in the past, the Fed officials have hinted that they want to get all of that excess uh, bond buying and, and mortgage buying uh, done, that, that they want to taper all that before they actually start raising interest rates. So what we want to watch for is when they start to say they're taking more than $15 billion a month off the table in terms of that taper. So we, we haven't heard from that yet, right? So there's still a lot of questions about the timing here. There's also a lot of data to consider. We could very well get a strong jobs report, which would just add sort of fuel to the fire that this is an economy at risk of overheating. There could be a strong jobs report. We know the corporate profits have been doing amazing. These are the the fattest profit margins for companies, I think, since 1950, according to an amazing story that I just read in Bloomberg. So, you know, that is remarkable. Companies are managing well through the supply chain crisis, through the demands for higher wages from workers who are afraid to go back to work, through all of these things that CEOs complain about, they're making tons of money. So that would suggest that maybe the Fed could speed things up up a little bit and, and at least corporate profits in corporate America could handle it. Something in the old days, good profits, that would power the market higher. We shall see. Thanks so much, Christine Romans. OPEC oil producers meet today as Omicron triggers fresh concerns about demand. Oil is picking up right now after a bruising couple of days. On Friday, U.S. crude sank 13 percent in response to the variant's discovery. That was its biggest drop in a single day since April 2020 and deepened a sell-off that began earlier in November. Oil has fallen more than 20 percent in the past three weeks. Anna Stewart joins me live now. Wow. You know, these wild swings in oil prices over the past few days, hard to keep track of. And now today begins this OPEC meeting. Yeah, such a rocky ride, Alison, from that double digit percentage decline on Friday to a modest rebound Monday, back down Tuesday. And they are higher today, but you know what? They've fallen back to where they were. Currently, we got Brent around $71 a barrel, 2.5% higher, similar move for WTI. Um, Where does it go from here? And how does this change the outlook going forwards? Because there is a lot for OPEC Plus to consider. OPEC meets today. OPEC Plus, which includes Russia and where the big decisions are likely to be made and reported, that will come tomorrow. Um, At the moment, everyone is trying to absorb, of course, what does Omicron mean for the world economy? What does it mean for oil? And that is why, of course, we are seeing these huge fluctuations in the last few days. It's pretty much on any headline uh, driven by the Omicron variant. And of course, as Christine was mentioning, nuggets that you get from the central bank related to that. What does it mean? Does it mean further travel restrictions? Does it mean lockdowns either regionally or nationally? Is it going to ultimately reduce uh, the demand for oil going forwards in the months to come? They are meeting today. They are meeting virtually. We had them with Russia tomorrow. But we're really not quite sure at this stage what we're going to get out of this, Alison. 
Yeah, we never really know what we're going to get. But I'm, I'm curious what you think, uh, how much you think that OPEC could wind up using Omicron, the uncertainty around it, plus the release of U.S. oil reserves, uh, you know, not just from the U.S., uh, but from other countries as well. How much do you think that OPEC will use that as cover, you know, to put the brakes on any supply increase? Well, it's interesting, is it? Because that move to release reserves from the U.S. and other countries, the so-called anti-OPEC group, that in and of itself, well before this variant was discovered, was already likely to put pressure on their strategy. OPEC resisted pressure from the U.S. with oil at sort of multi-year highs back in October. And actually, they were considered before that move to uh, keep up with the increased output in January, as expected, 400,000 barrels per day increase. They've been doing this gradually over the last few months. But due to that move from the U.S., some chatter that they might actually put a halt on that. Add the variant into the mix and the fact that it could, and we just don't know enough about it, but it could have an impact for the global economy. It could have an impact in terms of a slump in demand for oil. That moves possibly more likely. But I have to say, it's one of those meetings where, for the first time in ages, actually, I'm getting totally different reports from different experts and analysts. So I think all options are on the table. Alison? I am hearing the same confusing thing. So at least <laughs> we're on the same page here. Anna Stewart, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Families in Michigan are grieving after a horrific shooting at a high school in suburban Detroit. The suspected shooter, a 15-year-old student, is now in custody and on suicide watch after killing three fellow students and injuring eight people, including a teacher, Tuesday afternoon. Three of the wounded are in critical condition. Eye-opening revelations from Jeffrey Epstein's former pilot in the sex trafficking trial of Epstein's one-time confidant, Ghislaine Maxwell. The pilot testifying Tuesday that a who's who of powerful men, including Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, flew aboard Epstein's private plane. None of those passengers is accused of any wrongdoing in the current trial. Still to come on First Move, progress on a COVID pill. Merck's tablet is recommended for approval. I'll be talking with the company's head of medical affairs. And Travel Trouble, the CEO of Trivago, on how the industry will cope as Omicron leads to new curbs. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks still on track to kick off December trading with solid gains. The Nasdaq and the S&P look set to gain back a lot of what they lost on Tuesday. That said, though, market reaction will remain vulnerable to headline risk as we await new details on the uh, Omicron variant. The World Health Organization saying today the variant appears to have been detected in some 24 countries, but it stresses that most cases have been mild and says there's nothing to suggest the variant evades vaccines in any significant way. The president of the European Commission today suggesting that it's time for its members to discuss mandatory vaccinations. Advisors to the Food and Drug Administration say Merck's antiviral pill to treat COVID-19 should be authorized. The drug would be the world's first oral treatment for COVID-19. In trials, the pill reduced the risk of death and severe disease by 30 percent. The vote was a close one amid concerns about possible risks to pregnant women, among other safety issues. Uh, joining me now is Dr. Uh, Eliev Barr. He is the Senior Vice President of Global Medical Affairs at Merck. So grateful for your time, doctor. Thanks for having me. So I understand Merck is in the middle of studying this now, but there are indications that this pill could be affected against the Omicron variant? 
Right. The uh, Omicron variant uh, is primarily different from the other uh, types of COVID uh, at the spike protein. Our drug works in a completely different part of the virus. So we're very optimistic that the drug will be uh, continue to be effective against Omicron. And we're studying that right now. Talk with me about who this pill is for and who it is not for and whether or not this is really a game changer in the battle against COVID. Well, I really think it is a game changer. And the reason for that is, is that everything else in the past was required a, a visit to a doctor or a uh, emergency room or a hospital to get infusions for, for treatment. Uh, what we have here is a pill that people can take uh, and pick up in the pharmacy and take uh, as, as soon as possible. Uh, the pill is designed, uh, was studied in patients who were at high risk for having complications for COVID, including those who were above the age of 60, uh, who are overweight, who had diabetes, heart disease, and other uh, diseases that uh, impact their ability to fight uh, infections. And so, but it's a very large patient population. So I think it was a, it's a really important uh, tool in the toolkit that we have against COVID-19. Who is the pill not for? So the, the pill uh, was uh, not studied in uh, pregnant women, and it certainly uh, is a, a decision that should be made with, between the doctor and the patient about uh, uh, choosing the pill. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, uh, people who have a risk for having bad outcomes for COVID uh, will benefit from the pill. And uh, I think that those who are at low risk uh, will have probably uh, a, a more milder uh, disease, so they may or may not need the pill. But the panel did recommend against pregnant women taking this pill for fear of birth defects and other issues. So as a company, we don't recommend uh, the uh, pill to be given to pregnant women. Uh, the decisions should be made between the patient and, mm -hmm. and her uh, physician. Okay. All right. Your final analysis, it found that the drug to be about 30 percent effective at reducing hospitalization and death in high people, high risk people. That was lower than the 50 percent efficacy that was first announced in October. What changed here? Well, first of all, the, the uh, most important analysis was that first one. And the reason for that is that was during the time that the study was blinded. And it was the way that the study was designed is to look at that at that time point. What happened afterwards, uh, there may have been a, a variety of different biases that occurred when, once everyone knew that the drug was effective. We don't know exactly what happened, but I think overall uh, the, the study remains uh, quite positive. And this is a really important additional tool mm -hmm. to use against COVID-19. Now, in recommending emergency use authorization, many on the committee said this was a difficult vote. It was very close, 13 to 10. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of the pill's efficacy and the concern that it could uh, possibly even mutate into even more dangerous variants? Well, first of all, I think that it, it's important to point out that, that uh, we hadn't seen any uh, such events, any mutation events. In fact, we couldn't uh, harvest any viable virus in patients who received molnupiravir. So I think that that risk as well uh, is, is overblown. I think overall, uh, the committee is, des designs, is designed to address, to think about every, uh, every possible negative thing that could happen because they're an advisory committee. That's their job. Uh, it's a very uh, unusual time with COVID. And I think that uh, the committee gave it a very thorough review. We're very grateful to the committee for the work that they did. Uh, ultimately, the vote was positive, And we look forward to working with FDA to finish the EUA process. With such a close vote and so much concern about safety and so much concern for pregnant women, do you think this drug is being rushed because it's just so sorely needed globally and, and that there's just a limited supply of other treatments available? 
No, I think that the, the, the drug went through a very thorough review uh, and a very thorough clinical program, both preclinically and clinically, with multiple uh, studies that were uh, going on. I think this is a, a complicated time. COVID is a, is a, is a uh, pandemic that is evolving before our eyes. So we all have uh, unknowns with any of the therapies and any of the interventions that we use. So I think that's why there was a lot of discussion. Uh, again, we think that uh, patients need to have multiple options and countries need to have multiple options to combat COVID-19. And you can see with the Omicron uh, that uh, the sort of uh, um, interventions like monoclonal antibodies can lose some of their potency. Pills uh, that attack other parts of the virus are actually quite uh, important, therefore, to help treat the patients who get COVID-19. And Pfizer expected to come out with its pill at some point. How will that affect yours? Well, we have to remember that the, uh, that the enemy is, the, is COVID-19, not competition. I think it's really important for patients to have multiple options available. And I think countries will benefit from it. And uh, we're all really eager to see this uh, pandemic behind us. And so any potential intervention that helps is welcome. Okay, Dr. Eliev Barr, Senior Vice President of Global Medical Affairs at Merck. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much. And you're watching First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday as traders kick off the last trading month of 2021. Looks like a positive start to December with tech energy and airline stocks all in the green after Tuesday's broad-based sell-off. Only seven stocks in the S&P 500 closed with gains yesterday. New data shows the U.S. jobs recovery still on track, with private employers adding a stronger-than-expected 534,000 jobs last month. That bodes well for the government's November jobs report, which will be released on Friday. Investors also monitoring fresh volatility in the Turkish lira, the currency plunging to record lows after President Erdogan pushed for further rate cuts, even as inflation rages. The Turkish central bank uh, was forced to take emergency action to prop up the currency, but the lira is still weaker in recent trading. The Biden administration is considering stricter COVID testing for travelers arriving in the United States as concerns grow about the new Omicron variant. CNN's Athena Jones is live at Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey. Hi, Athena. What are you seeing? Hi, Allison. Well, I'm here in the International Arrivals Terminal. Newark is one of four airports where the CDC is enhancing uh, testing for some international arrivals. And so behind me, you can see uh, flights from India and Paris. Uh, People arriving from those flights can voluntarily go and get a swab, get their COVID test, their uh, PCR test. They also have at-home tests they can take home. But more broadly, uh, yes, the Biden administration is considering a stricter uh, testing for everyone flying. They want to make international travel as safe as possible. This is something that CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky uh, telegraphed to reporters on Tuesday. Here's what she said. CDC is evaluating how to make international travel as safe as possible, including pre-departure testing closer to the time of flight and considerations around additional post-arrival testing and self-quarantine. So Dr. So Dr. Walensky hinted at some of the measures that are now being considered, uh, among them requiring everyone who enters the U.S. to be tested for COVID-19 
one day before flying here. Right now, the requirement is three days before traveling to the U.S. Another thing under consideration, having all travelers, including U.S. citizens and permanent residents, be tested again uh, once they arrive or after they return to where they're going, regardless of vaccination status. Uh, and this is there's no final decision that, that has been made yet. This is something that officials have been considering. But we know this is a situation that could move quickly uh, because uh, you know President Biden has said that he's going to be laying out uh, a plan for how his administration is going to fight COVID uh, tomorrow. So we could uh, see this sort of these sort of announcements made this week. But this is all about trying to make sure that international travel is safe and uh, make sure that the CDC is on top of uh, and can detect uh, the Omicron variant uh, should it arrive here uh, or when it arrives here, I should say. Allison? Athena, I understand several U.S. airports you know, are screening for the Omicron variant, but there's not a lot known about this variant. How will they know to decipher, let's say, a positive test and knowing that that's the Omicron variant as opposed to maybe the Delta variant? Well, we don't know the, the, the details of it, but we do know that this idea of enhancing this type of screening, again, it, it's not mandatory, but it's something that the CDC has offered through uh, this, this group called Express Check. Uh, they've had it at several airports. They're expanding it now to, to Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson. So now it covers right here in Newark, uh, JFK, uh, San Francisco, and Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson. And it says the idea is to uh, increase the CDC's capacity to identify those with COVID on arrival to the U.S. and enhance the agency's surveillance. Now, another layer of testing, as you mentioned, is needed to detect the Omicron virus. Uh, we understand that that's what the CDC is aiming at doing. So uh, that, that's something that should be happening uh, here uh, under this new program. But uh, bottom line, you know, we don't know a lot about the Omicron variant. It's something nations want to keep track of. We do, however, know a lot about the Delta variant. We know that it is still driving immense spread in some parts of the U.S. And so the best way to, to protect against that and other variants that could emerge, uh, doctors are saying, is to get vaccinated if you haven't gotten vaccinated and to get that booster if you uh, have reached the point after your uh, last uh, full vaccination uh, where you're eligible. Allison? Okay, Athena Jones at Newark Airport, thanks for all of your reporting. And listening to Athena's report was Axel Hefer, the CEO of the travel search platform Travago, and he joins us live. Great to see you. Good morning. Good morning. So the Biden administration, as you heard, considering requiring everyone who enters the U.S. to be tested for COVID, do you think that could discourage travel? Um, to a certain extent, but I think testing is much, much better than uh, imposing quarantine restrictions. And um, it is it is a burden that I think in the current situation is um, is fully understandable by most travelers. Uh, what about restri yeah, restrictions on travel as well, like what we're seeing in Japan, where the government is asking airlines to not take reservations? Yeah, I mean, full travel restrictions, um, I think, are, are a measure that is obviously very extreme. Um, and and can make sense if you if you want to buy time to understand a bit better a new variants. But um, you cannot stop a virus from entering your country, no matter what you do. I mean, we are living in a global global world, um, uh, very intertwined. So it is it is a short term measure, but um, I, I I don't think that um, that it is the right measure. Let's talk about what you've been seeing as we've seen this sort of rapid onset of concerns about the Omicron var Om Omicron variant. Um, how have you seen travel bookings change, you know, just just over the past week? 
uh, bookings have actually come down. Um, that is for sure. Uh, what, to be honest, had a much, much greater impact um, is the surge in cases in certain countries in, in Europe, um, uh, which we've now seen for the last couple of weeks. But um, in, in either case, I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere, we are, we are expecting a, a very, very problematic uh, winter and then, then uh, hopefully um, a return to almost uh, normalcy in, in the spring. It was about a month ago that you said uh, that you saw the potential for normalized travel to happen by the spring, potentially by the summer. Do you still feel that way? I know that we were sort of getting back into traveling and then the Omicron variant popped on the scene. What are your feelings now about getting back to normal? I mean, our view is not is, is unchanged. I mean, it's, it's clear that new variants will come up uh, over the next couple of months, over the next couple of years. And um, uh, we are getting better and better adjusting to the new normal. Um, there are obviously certain countries behind in terms of vaccination levels, et cetera. But uh, we are still positive um, for next summer. Let's talk about some trends. What are the key travel trends that come out of COVID-19 that you can see uh, carried through next year? Yeah, I, I do think that we will continue to see for next year um, a change in destinations. There is still a lot of uncertainty. And, and um, from that, that respect, actually, I, I think that the new variant were, is adding to that uncertainty. So closer to home, um, easier return um, and and a shift away from the um, from the long distance um, and and more niche destinations to local trips or national trips um, and um, yeah I, th- I think that that's that's actually one of the biggest things that we're expecting for next year. Now, in looking at your search traffic, I'm curious to hear about travel behaviors. You know, where where are people traveling the most, and where are they not traveling? Where are they traveling the least? I mean, the, the U.S. is uh, is one of the stronger markets uh, for sure. I mean, the, the, the situation is, is obviously not great, but is is much more stable than in Europe. Um, in the northern hemisphere and then the southern hemisphere has the benefit that uh, summer, the, the virus is obviously much more dangerous than winter. Um, so, um, yeah, very, very different by market. And then uh, Asia is is overall still, still uh, very problematic. Um, but um, case by case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally hear you. Do, you. do you think that business travel will ever come back in the way that it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, um, it, it's a big debate. And, and the way we are thinking about it is there, there are basically two kinds of business trip. One is, is relationship driven. So sales meetings, uh, meeting long, long um, uh, long-term partners. The other one is more transactional, internal meetings, project updates, etc. And we think that the latter will permanently shrink um, and and come down because we've just practiced for too long to to sit in front of a video camera. So a certain percentage of those meet, uh, meetings will permanently be replaced by video calls, whereas the relationship meetings will come back. And we all sense it during the lockdown. In-person interaction is something that that everybody missed um, in in lockdowns and working from home, um, and there there we are quite confident. But overall, we do expect the volume to come down. Okay, uh, very interesting to see those travel trends, and we'll see how things progress as we learn more about the variant as well. Axel Hefer, CEO of Trivago, thanks so much for your time today. And for more information about COVID travel restrictions worldwide, go to CNN. 
And finally, on first move, given the chance, who wouldn't want to spend a weekend hanging out with who else? Adele. The superstar singer announcing her Las Vegas residency called Weekends with Adele. Sounds cozy. She'll do two shows each weekend from January 21st to April 16th at Caesars Palace. Adele's fourth studio album, 30, debuted at number one last week and is already the year's top-selling album in the U.S. And that's it for the show. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Allison Kosick. Marketplace Asia is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.